everyone. My name is Jin Moon. I'm a committee member of the IEEE Power Electronics Society Digital Media and Education Committee and a faculty at the Florida State University and the Florida A&M University. With me, I have my colleague, Professor Arjit Banerjee. How are you, Arjit? Uh, I'm doing good, Jin. Thanks for asking. Hello, everyone. Myself, Arjit Banerjee. I'm a faculty at University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. And uh, I'm also the vice chair of uh, IEEE Bell's Digital Media and Education Committee. And today we have a very special guest uh, with us, the founding president of the IEEE PELS, Professor John Kasakian. He's the professor of electrical engineering emeritus at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us, Professor Kasakian. We are very excited to have a chat with you about many things, including research, teaching, PELS, and so on. Uh, thank you very much, Jin, for giving me the opportunity to, uh, uh, to make one of these things. Um, it's a little daunting. I have not done one of these before. Hope it turns out okay. You received all the academic degrees from MIT. I noticed the SCD degree, the Doctor of Science degree, right? Instead of PhD, I myself, of course, chose the PhD like the trend back then. So I know both are equivalent. Was there a special reason behind choosing the SCD degree? Yeah, yeah. The color of the velvet in the SCD degree is gold, and uh, the color of the velvet <laughs> in the PhD is, is purple. And I preferred the gold because most of the gowns, in fact, are purple, so it stands out a little more. <laughs> I see. And, and, and in fact, the way you choose it is by checking a box on your, uh, your thesis uh, uh, submission form. So a uh, uh, quick question, Professor JDK here. So you love sailing and fishing. Are you still active in those? Or, uh, and how does that help in, in terms of being a faculty and how does these activities help you? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I mean, being faculty emeritus would help in those activities if we weren't stuck in a pandemic at the moment. Uh, but sure, it gives you a little more time. And, and, you know, boating and fishing are activities where you can be alone and reflect and, um, uh, you know, kind of rejuvenate yourself. I think they're great activities. I love being on the water. And uh, I'm looking forward to when this pandemic is over so I can get back there. So are we absolutely, this pandemic has been um, devastating in many ways for many of us. So absolutely, I totally agree with you. So in, in, in terms of asking you a little bit about the MIT education. So how did you wound up at MIT? How was the MIT education back then? And, uh, and was it really like still, I think one of the uh, keyword we have heard about it's that MIT education is about drinking water from the fire hose. How was it back then? Uh, well, it was pretty much like that. Um, in fact, when I uh, first arrived at MIT, uh, I didn't buy any kind of clothing with MIT logo on it until after my first semester to make sure that I was gonna be able to make it through. <laughs> uh, but I got started uh, in, in um, the area of electrical engineering uh, as an amateur radio operator. Uh, back uh, even before high school, I had a, uh, my license and uh, spent a lot of my time uh, both building uh, equipment and uh, operating the equipment as, as a ham. 
Uh, back then, there were a lot of things you could do with your hands that uh, aren't available today. For example, um, I used to work on cars, uh, rebuilt engines. Um, you can't do that today. Uh, there's no opportunity to kind of, of develop those mechanical skills that we were able to develop then. And, and, manu and building, uh, building radios and transmitters and stuff for, for my ham radio activities um, was much different than it is today. Today, you've got a circuit board, you plug your components into it. Uh, back then, we had aluminum chassis and, and, and discrete components and a big soldering iron and lugs and stuff. And it was um, much more electromechanical kind of work uh, than it is today. And I guess the, the start of it all was um, a crystal set. I don't think uh, kids today uh, have the experience of a crystal set, but you know, we used to use um, the cardboard tube from a toilet paper roll uh, to wind a coil on and then build your crystal set with a little wiper across the coil so that you could tune it. Um, and then you had a, a, a galena, piece of galena uh, that uh, was attached to one wire and you had a little cat whisker that you would move around that galena to try and find a hot spot. It basically was the diode that, uh, yeah. you know, demodulated. And I remember um, when I, I saved enough money at some point to buy uh, one of the first uh, commercial package diodes, a 1N34 was a I think it was a, at that time, it was a germanium diode. And when I stuck that in, in place of the galena, um, it was astonishing because, <laughs> you know, it really did a super job of demodulating. And all of a sudden the volume came up and the selectivity got much better. And it was an exciting time. So that sort of got me interested in, in uh, electrical engineering. And, uh, and, and during my sophomore year in high school, um, I was in a mechanical drawing class and one of my buddies uh, who was sharing the table with me uh, said, hey, have you ever heard of this place called MIT? And I said, no. And he said, well, he said, I heard that if you get a degree from MIT, you're guaranteed of a job. And so, <laughs> so that was my first exposure to MIT and, and uh, and then I, I decided when I applied to colleges that, uh, okay, I better put MIT on my list, uh, kind of a crapshoot, let's see if I can get in. And, uh, and I managed to get in. And yeah, it was, a, it was a, a difficult, not difficult, that's a bad word to use. It was a challenging experience as an undergraduate at MIT, but it was also a marvelous experience. It's one of those experiences I would, I never regret it. It was just a magnificent time to be um, in an electrical engineering program. It was part of the the, uh, the, the era of the space program. We were doing Apollo. Um, mm -hmm. There are lots of other of uh, my fellow students who had had uh, grown up in the same kind of environment of amateur radio and diddling around with cars and stuff. And so. Um, having that kind of a cohort and at the same time being in the marvelous environment of Boston was just a magnificent experience. Uh, you know, I look back on it very fondly. 
Very interesting, very interesting, Professor JTK. So going a little further along those MIT lines, when did you decide to become a faculty at MIT? Probably during my last year in my doctoral program. At, at that time, there were all sorts of opportunities in industry. Um, most people graduating with me at that time went into one or, or of the many laboratories that were, um, you know, just dynamic environments. RCA, General Electric, Westinghouse, uh, Texas Instruments, um, you know, Fairchild, which had just started developing uh, silicon uh, transistors. Uh, I mean, it was a golden age of electrical engineering and electronics. Uh, solid state electronics was, was brand new. Um, we had just, uh, in fact, inaugurated the, the first solid state electronics courses at MIT and elsewhere. Um, so, you know, I really didn't think about a faculty position until the last year of my graduate studies. And then I thought, you know, I really like it here. I enjoy, I had been a teaching assistant. I had been an instructor. I enjoy working with students. Um, I enjoy the challenge of, of presenting material in a way that someone can understand it. And I thought, hey, let me give it a shot. So uh, I applied. And I have to say, though, that um, I, I think if I were to try to get a faculty position today, I probably wouldn't make it um, because faculty positions today are just so aggressively sought after by um, graduates of doctoral programs uh, that uh, the competition is really severe. But anyway, that's how I wound up uh, on the faculty. So your own experience as a grad student, did it help shaping your role as a PhD advisor? Oh yeah, sure. Um, you know, when, when you're a graduate student, um, you're exposed to all sorts of, of techniques and challenges that are faced by the faculty. So I saw a lot of really good advising and I saw a lot of really bad advising. Mm -hmm. And I saw a lot of students who reacted differently to the different kinds of advising. So sure, it, uh, it influenced what I chose to be kind of the modus operandi of my, my work as a faculty member. You're a role model for many power electronics people, including me. Can you tell us more about the ones that inspired you? Uh, uh, yeah, there were a lot. There were people like Tom Wilson, uh, down at Duke, Harry Owen, who was his colleague down there, who had academic programs. Uh, Dave Middlebrook out of Caltech had an academic program, and these were, were people who, who I admired and who had a major impact on the field. And, and they were, um, you know, I had, I had uh, uh, interactions with, with many of the engineers at General Electric Corporate Research and Development, uh, especially Bill McMurray, had uh, developed a lot of uh, the kinds of circuits that were necessary at the time to introduce power electronics into the commercial world. Um, Bill Newell at Westinghouse, for whom the Newell Prize that the Pells Awards is named after. Uh, Alex Cusco, who, who was a consultant, former MIT faculty member. 
Sashi Dewan at Toronto. Uh, <laughs> Sashi was a real character. Um, and he was very well known. He had published the book with Strawn and uh, was a real hands-on engineer, had lots of, uh, of stuff going on in his laboratory. And so I went up to Toronto and visited him. Uh, it's an experience I won't forget. Yeah, so there were lots of people who influenced me. One more actually um, was a, an engineer named Keith Sucker who um, worked at Robocon. He was one of the, I think at the time he was their chief engineer. And uh, he and I uh, worked together a bit to, to design the power supplies for MIT's fusion reactor, the Alcator C. And uh, Keith was a master at designing very high power uh, converter systems. And so I learned a lot from, from him, very practical stuff. So yeah, there are a lot of people who uh, uh, influenced me uh, positively. There weren't very many who influenced me negatively. That, that's very good to know. That's very good to know. But again, uh, I mean, as you were saying all these names, uh, Professor JDK, they're all pioneers and it was, um, it's great to see that how some of these founding members, how of the, uh, some of these members together build the platform where we are today. We are really standing on the shoulders of the giant. So that's incredible to uh, know. <laughs> So one of the unique experience we got to know, uh, Professor JDK, about you was about your uh, stint at U.S. Navy. And I, I think you are very uh, much, you appreciate the days and you really love those days being with the U.S. Navy. If you can share some experience with us. It actually was a, was a great time. Um, I, I was in the Navy because I went through the MIT NROTC program and was commissioned um, after I, I uh, got my undergraduate degree. And then I, I stayed for three more years, completed my master's and, and engineer's degree, and then started on my doctorate. Uh, and then I had to, to leave for two years in the Navy. Um, I, I served on two aircraft carriers, the Enterprise and the Forrestal, uh, during my time as a midshipman. Those were fascinating experiences. I, if anyone has an opportunity to visit a modern aircraft carrier, please take the opportunity and, and tour it. it. It is a marvel of engineering. Time I spent on those carriers, uh, it was in the Sixth Fleet, which is the Mediterranean Fleet. Uh, so not only was I exposed to some wonderful uh, beaches and, <laughs> and scenery and food, um, but the aircraft carriers themselves were, were just a marvelous place to explore. Um, I used to go up at night on the flight deck when we were underway with no flight operations. And I would go up forward to the bow of the, of the ship. And the ship, of course, is, was uh, 1,100 feet long, so it, a couple football fields. Um, and uh, I would just stand there and listen to the bow wave and the feel the wind uh, coming over the bow as we were moving at something like 30 or 40 miles an hour. Other times I would go down into the catapult area, which is the area beneath the flight deck, which has the steam catapults in it. Watch during flight operations, watch these uh, steam rams and the shivs with the cables around them operating. It's just a marvelous piece of engineering and a wonder to to experience and, and watch. And then during my time uh, as a Naval Ship Systems Command technical representative. Uh, I was stationed out in Minneapolis 
at UNIVAC where we were servicing the 7th Fleet, which was off of Vietnam at the time, um, maintaining their fire control systems, their computer systems. And UNIVAC and a number of other companies out there, Data General, uh, control data, were manufacturing the equipment for the 7th Fleet. And, and we would put that equipment through their trials before it was shipped out. And one of the things I remembered, I'd never seen this before, one of the tests that was done on the equipment was a shock test. And so there was a new equipment, new computer that was developed by UNIVAC. It was a, at the time it was called a mini computer but it, it stood in a rack about four feet high and two feet deep and two feet wide. And it was for the Naval Tactical Data System. And, uh, and to qualify it, it had to undergo a shock test. And the shock test was to sit this thing on top of a big steel plate, uh, which was positioned over a trench. And outside this trench was this big, probably weighed about 50 pounds, a big hammerhead on a handle that was cantilevered. And this thing would swing down and go up underneath that plate and slam into the bottom of the plate. And I was told, although I certainly didn't experience it, is that if you were standing on that plate at the time that that hammer hit that plate, that it would break many bones in your body. Uh, and one of the things that happened during that test, which I had to witness because to witness the acceptance test, one of the things that happened was one of the, they, they had toggle switches on this. Momentum of the hammer slamming into that bottom of that plate and accelerating the computer caused the little handle on a toggle switch to switch. How much of an acceleration on that little toggle switch would you have to have to cause to create that switch to actually flip? So that was that was really quite a, quite an experience. Let's talk about the PELS. So you were the founding president of the PELS. What was it like creating the PELS and being a founder? Uh, it was a challenge. It was also a great, a great experience because it wasn't just me. There was a group of us that felt that, that we needed a society dedicated to power electronics. I mean, people like Tom Wills, Harry Owen, Tier Trey Burns, in particular in the computer industry, who were working with power supplies, felt we really needed to have a, a separate society dedicated to power electronics because we were kind of enmeshed in, in several other societies as sort of subsidiary activities, in particular the Industry Application Society, the Industrial Electronic Society, the Aerospace Society. We got together and discovered that we first had to start uh, with a council to see how much uh, interest there was in this. So in 1983, we formed the Power Electronics Council which incorporated sponsorship by all these other societies. They were willing to sponsor the council. We really needed to be independent. We needed to be able to structure our own activities. We needed to be able to hold our own conferences and we needed to be financially independent, which was going to be a challenge. And so we decided to try to migrate to a society. It took, it took over a year to do that. Uh, there was opposition from some of the other societies that we had to overcome. And uh, I remember being uh, at, a, at a 
a TAB meeting, the IEEE Technical Activities Board meeting, and I had to argue for why we needed to be a society. And I had to counter the arguments from, in particular, the IAS. Ultimately, uh, the vote was taken and, and we became a society. So it was extremely gratifying. Uh, but it was also due to the hard work of a lot of other people, as I said. It was a real group effort. I see. How was the APEC formed? Is it directly from that group meeting? Uh, yeah, that, that's interesting. A, the first APEC was before the formation of PELS. The first APEC huh. was in 1986. PELS was formed in 1988. And APEC actually evolved uh, because there had been a conference, a commercial conference, very successful, and it was it was focused on the application engineer. It was focused on industry people. It was focused on those people who weren't doing research, but were using the results of all the research to build companies and to build products and and so forth. And it filled a very very important role. Uh, an important need uh, in the power electronics community, <clears throat> which the IEEE at that point did not fill. For some reason, the, the fellow who, who owned that conference decided to no longer uh, produce it. And so a group of us here in the Boston area, as well as uh, I think Dave Middlebrook was engaged, engaged with us, and I know he was, So we had some folks from the West Coast got together. There was a, a group of, I think it was eight of us. We used to call ourselves a gang of eight. And we said, look, there, there's, a, there, there's a real need here. This, the conference is no longer available to those who are practicing engineers uh, who were benefiting from it. We, we've got to fill this void. That's the responsibility of the IEEE. And so we put together a proposal for the conference and uh, submitted it to the IEEE and they said, well, we wanted to put the conference on in the fall and we were working on this during the uh, winter. And they said, you, you really, you're not going to be able to, to, to put it all together by next fall. And we ignored that advice and we went forward and, and through some hard work and a lot of uh, dedication on the part of, of, of many of the people in that group of eight, we put together the first APEC. And we held it in New Orleans. And, nice. and, and I'll tell you why we held it in New Orleans. It was because for, for many years, I'd been going to these conferences um, in, in every place but New Orleans. And I'd never been to New Orleans. And New Orleans <laughs> just sort of beckoned there as this place that was a, must be a fascinating place. And so uh, we decided... Yes, we're going to hold our conference in New Orleans. And, uh, you know, I think history has shown it was a great success. First APEC, uh, there were a total of 35 papers uh, and, and five seminars. You know, that's when we started uh, producing educational seminars at, at our conference. I see. And in the last APEC, uh, there were, I don't know, how many papers, far too many papers, actually, and, and lots of seminars. <laughs> It's just a huge conference. It's really expanded uh, due to the due to the creativity and diligent work of, of all those people who, subsequent to the first conference, uh, took responsibility for for developing and expanding the conference. So, kudos to all of those folks. It expanded like hundred times. Uh, yeah, more than that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's so one more question, uh, Professor JDT here. Like you have been involved, obviously, like we talked about PELS, but you have been beyond PELS, beyond uh, uh, teaching, beyond research. You were also involved with a lot of consulting works with industry and government. And I'm sure it takes a lot of time from you. So what aspects of consulting really fascinated you? Why did you pick up consulting? Why would you recommend uh, doing consulting uh, for young generations, for researchers as of today? Why, is there any particular reason? Yeah, well, um, consulting uh, is probably the most efficient way for somebody like myself who was in an academic environment uh, to get exposed to what's going on in the practical world, to see what, what the practicing engineers are doing, what their problems are, and to also be engaged in, in trying to solve some fascinating problems. Back in uh, the late 70s, early 80s, when we had the energy crisis, there was a lot of, of activity in trying to produce energy-saving devices, particularly electric energy-saving devices. And, and so <clears throat> there was a lot of flim-flam, a lot of people who were promoting devices that didn't work. So one of the thing, one of the earlier consulting jobs I had was to work with the attorney generals of several states, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Alaska, to uh, debunk and prosecute uh, some folks who were promoting an energy-saving device that you would plug in the wall and then plug something else into it. It was basically a surge arrester, and they claimed that all these spikes on the line were causing lots of of energy uh, to be lost. And uh, that was a very, <laughs> a very interesting uh, experience um, because I had to testify uh, for three days in New Jersey. And another consulting job that was fascinating, which actually um, allowed me to use some of the research that I'd done uh, was for General Mills. Uh, again, during the energy crisis, General Mills was concerned uh, about um, the lack or potential lack of, of their being able to acquire the necessary gas uh, for their process furnaces where they manufactured their cereals, uh, in particular Cheerios. Uh, Cheerios was, and I think still is, largest selling cereal in the world. And so they came to me at MIT and, and said, um, look, here's, we've got this problem. Our, our, our processes are gas-fired. We, we would like to convert them to electric. Can you do something? Is this possible? And so I thought about it. They described to me what the systems were. And I said, you know, I, I think we can use induction heating. And so I, I worked with them. I designed um, an induction heating system based on some research that was done along with my graduate student at the time, Marty Schlecht. We worked with Westinghouse to, to actually manufacture the system. Uh, and then I worked with General Mills to install it out in their plant in Lodi, California, where they were manufacturing Cheerios. So we installed this thing. Then I went out there for the tests uh, for several days. It worked like a champ. In fact, it was so efficient they had to turn off the, heat, the, the ventilation in the chamber in which they were processing the Cheerios um, because they didn't have that excess heat anymore. And we were producing Cheerios at something like 120 pounds a minute. And that job actually resulted in something else that was very educational. Issue of educating uh, the public about 
some of the aspects of, of electrical engineering. This system was, was basically, it's an iron pipe um, around which the induction coil was wrapped. And it was then, of course, energized. And there was a sign on it. There was a cage around the whole thing. said danger, high voltage. But I got a call um, a few weeks after I returned from the tests. Engineer that I was working with at, at General Mills, who was just an extremely talented engineer, who in fact had invented the double vibrating conveyor belt, called me and he said, John, he said, uh, we have a problem in Lodi, he said. The operators are calling uh, this system the death gun. Right. <laughs> it had this sign on it that said, hey, danger, you know. He said, can you do something about this? Can you come out here and explain to them that this is not a death gun? And I said, yeah, I can try. I again went out there and, and they were on a three-shift system there, 24 hours a day. Uh, I prepared a tutorial about this gun and I presented it to each of the three shifts so I stayed up for 24 hours presenting this lecture to these three shifts. And it was great because they had questions. You know, they were concerned. They didn't understand. This was new. In the gas, they could see. There was a flame. They could turn it off. They could turn it on. They felt it was hot. And they stayed away from it, etc. But But a, an induction heating system with a coil and electricity man, this was magic, you know? They couldn't see, well, what is causing this thing to get so hot? And, and if I get too close to it, you know, will I, will I be sterilized? Will, will I, you know, be radiated? What? And so um, I had lots of questions. Uh, it was very, I found it both educational for me and entertaining in the, in the sense that that these guys, these were real folks who knew their business uh, and been there a long time. They weren't going to take any guff from some book-learned academic. And so we had a marvelous time exchanging uh, views back and forth and my answering questions and eventually gaining their trust. Eventually, uh, General Mills converted all of their systems to this we designed for, for the Lodi plant. It, it was a really great experience. I mean, even being in that manufacturing facility was a great experience because I'd never been in one before. Uh, using a man lift, going around and seeing all the different kinds of process controls they had, the process machinery, you know, how, how do you make a Cheerio? Uh, where's the dough come from? Okay, what do you do after you cut this little circle? The other thing that was great is that this was a time when they were <laughs> they were coming out with honey nut Cheerios. They had just developed a oh. honey nut Cheerio. Nice. The greatest challenge they had, my engineer mentor, who I mentioned earlier, told me that that their biggest challenge with a honey nut Cheerio was trying to figure out how to get the Cheerios not to stick together, which they did. And if you think about it, that's a problem. And here's another problem, engineering problem. In Raisin Bran, how do you get the raisins in the box to evenly distribute throughout the bran so that when you pour it, you know, you don't get bran until you get to the bottom of the box and then you get all raisins. I mean, these practical problems that all of a sudden I was exposed to were just fascinating. But the other thing that I learned, what the puffing process was. Now, I don't know whether 
any of you recall the old ads for Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice. The Quaker ads said Quaker puffed wheat, Quaker puffed rice, shot from guns. What it meant was these dough pellets would go into a pipe which looked like a gun barrel. They would go into the pipe and the pipe would then be pressurized with steam. And so the pellet would be saturated with steam. And then at the end of the pipe, you would open up the breech. And this, of course, would immediately bring the interior of the pipe down to atmospheric pressure again. But all the steam inside that little dough pellet couldn't escape right away. It escaped by essentially puffing that pellet. So all the puffed products are made in that fashion. You know, you ask me, what do you gain from consulting? Well, insight into what's going on outside of the academic world. And you learn some fascinating things about some very mundane issues. That's really, that's really encouraging. And I completely like, that's really fascinating to hear in terms of how you can learn from Cheerios and how you can bring that learning to power electronics. That's amazing to hear. That's amazing. Yeah. That's really like practical problems. I really love solving those things, helping someone really. Let's move deeper into your power electronics research. So what was your PhD about? Ah, well, my PhD was not about power electronics. Uh, my PhD was about power transmission systems, in particular, the, the influence of non-transposition of transmission lines on ground fault currents. American Electric Power was putting in the first 765,000 volt transmission system in the world. It was um, after I joined the faculty and recognized that, hey, you know, we've got power electronics as uh, something that's going to be very influential. My master's thesis actually was electronic-based, very first thermophotovoltaic device, demonstrated a germanium thermophotovoltaic device, I think, for the first time. And so uh, my background actually was in semiconductor devices before I got engaged in power systems. Uh, in fact, as a sophomore, I worked with the Semiconductor Electronics Education Committee, <coughs> which was a group of, of faculty and industrial researchers from all over the world, a group of about I would guess maybe a dozen experts in, in the field of semiconductor devices. And this group had the mission from the National Science Foundation of producing a curriculum in semiconductor, in, in solid state electronics. And so I worked with them as an undergraduate student, which eventually resulted in a series of I think it's seven paperback books that were the first books used in a curriculum in, in, in solid state electronics in at least the United States and Europe, if not the rest of the world. For those of you who can get a cop, a set of those books, I, th I think you'll find them very interesting. They're still relevant today. Wow, that's very impressive. Works you did during the master's and the PhD, did it help you or influence your early faculty career? Uh, well, certainly it did. Pre-doctoral work in semiconductors, of course, uh, made me familiar with semiconductor devices, and my power work made me aware of the fact that, hey, look, there's, there's going to be a major impact in the power industry made by semiconductor devices. So there was kind of a natural melding of those two, of those two experiences that I had. I decided that we should have some, something along the lines of a power electronics course. And, and the first one I worked with, actually, Alex Cusco and Bruce Wedlock, the three of us put together the very first course in power electronics at MIT. Uh, well, this is a, a little 
off topic, but how did you choose what topics you wanted to work on as a faculty? It's a, it's a delicate balancing problem between following the funding and doing the research that I want, especially as a junior faculty myself that I always wanted to ask. Yeah, uh, it is a delicate balance. I think what you have to do, at least what I did, and what I would recommend others to do is you first find the challenge that excites you. What, what is it that you're willing to put your energy into? And then you go after the funding. There are lots of funding opportunities available today. There aren't as many available from industry as there used to be, at least not those funds that you could use for basic research. There's industrial funding for applied research which is fine, but you, I think you, the very first thing you have to do is, is engaged with issues that you feel are compelling and that you're excited about and that you can really devote yourself to and enjoy it. And then you go after the funding. I see. That's a very good advice. Thank you. So uh, moving on to, moving on to uh, the research projects and uh, topics you have worked on, Professor JDK, here. Um, if you can share some of the most memorable projects or research topic you have worked on, uh, as you were talking about the delicate balance, what was your uh, idea about where you would invest uh, your energy and some of those research areas where you found it fascinating? Uh, actually, one of the uh, most interesting, it was a small project that I did with my student David Lau uh, early in my career. It was related to the application of MOSFETs. When MOSFETs first became applicable to power, that is when first power MOSFETs were available, people didn't really understand uh, how to employ them. They didn't understand their basic performance or characteristics. And at the time, I had created a power electronics consortium here at MIT, where we had a large number of companies that were members. And we would put on research program, research review programs for them. And one of the programs that we put on was actually a hands-on experimental tutorial. They were all here at MIT. And we had fabricated a, a, a half a dozen or more actual experiments employing MOSFETs that they could use to, uh, to experience how these devices behaved. And one of the problems in the early days of applying MOSFETs is that there were these mysterious failures of MOSFETs that, that had been paralleled. And you see, at that time, the theory was you could easily parallel MOSFETs because of the, the positive temperature coefficient of resistance uh, of the MOSFET. And since the MOSFET, the power MOSFET at the time was principally a resistive device when it was on. If one device was carrying too much current, its resistance would increase and the current would move over to the other one. And so the theory was, hey, uh, you know, slam them together and no problem. But it turned out it wasn't any kind of a current sharing problem that caused these failures. The failures were endemic and unexplained. David Lau, my, my student and I, decided to explore what was going on in the interconnection of these MOSFETs. We discovered there was an oscillation between the MOSFETs due to the MOSFET capacitances and interconnecting wires that caused internal MOSFET voltages at the gate 
that exceeded that which was necessary to make the gate fail. And we first looked at discrete pets in parallel and showed that, that this was the case. And then what we did is we took devices which had packaged two dye so that you had two paralleled fets, which was at the time a common thing to do because you could, you know, the economics of manufacturing the fets in larger dye wasn't very good. And so you packaged a couple of smaller dye in, in, in a TO3 package, and then you bonded them together inside the package. So we thought, hey, wait a minute. If, if we see this oscillation outside the package, what's going on inside the package? And so we, we opened up the package and we created an experiment where we could actually probe the bond wires and show the oscillation inside that package but outside the FETs uh, and demonstrate that in fact inside that package there were oscillations that were severe enough to cause the dye inside that package to fail. And we also showed that, that uh, there was a solution to that uh, which was to incorporate a resistance in series with with the gate lead, an overwhelmingly brilliant solution because it's once you recognize what the problem is, the solution becomes pretty evident. But the manufacturers found this very insightful, and in fact, for a while, when the par parallel internally parallel devices were still being manufactured, they would put a resistor inside the package. And that was a very satisfying piece of uh, little research that we did. That's, that's very interesting. So let me ask you, since you have spanned through, you have, a, you have had a, such an illustrious career in power electronics, and you saw so many, uh, you saw so many different aspects of power electronics. It was very multidisciplinary as you were talking. It moved on from circuits to understand about induction heating, about understanding about power system. What gives you the highest sense of uh, satisfaction in your professional career? Uh, that's easy. Uh, that's interacting with my students. I mean, there is nothing more satisfying than, than learning from your students, interacting with them both in classrooms and in the laboratory, interacting with them socially. Uh, I mean, the wonderful thing about being a faculty member is that every year you're exposed to a brand new cohort of students who are all the same age. In other words, every year, a group of 19-year-olds. So as I'm aging, I'm still kept young by interacting with these young <laughs> kids who are coming through who each year have a slightly different take on life, have a slightly different philosophy of what they want to do. And, and it's incremental, you know? You don't see it year to year necessarily. We know you are working on a book, the next edition of Principles of Paralectronics. Can you tell us more about it? Ah, uh, yeah, the first issue, the first Principles of Paralectronics was uh, 19, 1991, amazing. When Emeritus and I had the time I decided, hey, you know, there's a lot has happened since 1991, as I'm sure I don't have to tell anyone who's listening to this. We felt that this was a very good book. I still think it's an exceptional book. It's a unique book. I wanted to do a second edition. I asked my co-authors whether they would like to engage with me on a second edition, but they were a little reluctant. But writing a second edition is a very, uh, it's a time-consuming job. Professor David Perrault, my former student and now my colleague and now a senior member of the MIT faculty. Dave and I are working on this second edition. It's going to be completely revamped. It's got 
substantially more material on magnetics. A lot has happened in the area of materials and semiconductor devices, so we've completely updated that material. A very high frequency is now, you know, is now in the vicinity uh, of, of tens and hundreds of megahertz routinely. Uh, there are a lot of different techniques and materials that are used at those frequencies, so we've got to revise the book to, to reflect that. Uh, controls have changed, uh, integrated circuits, uh, which now make controls much easier to implement, are, are now used routinely. Circuits themselves have evolved. We've got new circuits, new ways of converting from one form to another. Uh, we have new applications. The area of, of renewable energy has created a, a wealth of application opportunities for power electronics that require all sorts of new innovations in how you design these, these converter systems. And so the book has tried to reflect that. We have maintained what I think is one of the, the strongest and most unique features of the book, and that is that the problems in the book are very carefully structured to educate. They bring new information. They expand on some of the material that's in the book. They Nowhere in any of the problems will you find an answer that is simply going to plug in. You go and plug into some formula in the book. It's an opportunity for faculty who are using the book to use the problems themselves as additional teaching material or to use them as problems assigned to the students. Uh, and there are lots and lots of problems uh, in the book. And this is the great thing about the publisher, which is uh, Cambridge University Press. Uh, they have promised us that they are going to price this book, hardcover book, at $59. Is it going to be thicker than the previous version? I'm guessing it would be, but... No, it will not be a big thick book. It'll be like 800 pages. The current book is uh, 750 pages approximately. The format will be a little bigger. There will be more material in the book. So if you want to count words, I guess, there'll be more words in the new book. So speaking of the innovations you mentioned, so, and I know you worked on the transmission system already. So what do you think of the role of the power electronics in modern society, especially in the context of the electrical grid? Now that the AI, cybersecurity, electrical vehicles, all, all sorts of power charging stations are all coming together onto the electrical grid. Yeah, uh, well, I, I think that, that power electronics is central to everything that's going on today. In anything that plugs into the wall today, or almost anything that plugs into the wall today, has a power electronics in the inter interface. All of the new, as I already mentioned, you know, the renewable energy systems all have a power electronic interface. They need a power electronic interface. IoT, to the extent you believe that, that IoT will in fact be everything, requires power electronics to do the kinds of controls that would be necessary. Uh, the grid is, is more and more dependent upon power electronics, not only for things like HVDC transmission, which is increasing in its penetration around the world, particularly in developing countries, but in controlling the grid. Fax devices are all power electronics. The, the solid-state transformer, which is something that is on the horizon, it, it's a subject of a lot of of work, the major work really has to be to bring the, the, the cost of such a device down. The technology is all there. That's also covered in the book, by the way. A solid state transformer would allow you to control the distribution system in ways that 
that you can't do today. I mean, it would be a magnificent adjunct to distribution system control and the reliability of the system. So there are just an innumerable number of opportunities and requirements for and of power electronics in society today. So I, I think it's, it's a golden age for power electronics and it's a golden opportunity. Any engineer, any student who is engaged in power electronics. Yeah, I completely agree with you, uh, JGK here. And moving on from research to teaching, and you have taught so many times for electronics at MIT, and I was not lucky, we were not lucky to have you at, as our lecturer, as our instructor. Uh, Dave taught us the class at Paul, of power electronics at uh, MIT. What would you, as we are teaching, we are again uh, junior faculty at this point, and we are teaching, we are trying to engage with students, undergraduates. What would be your recommendation in terms of uh, teaching, what can we do to improve our teaching to make ourselves as better instructor and follow your footsteps? Well, I'm not sure you should follow my footsteps. I think you should be better than I was. I, I guess there are a couple of things that, that I would recommend. First of all, uh, do not use PowerPoints. I think that PowerPoint slides have been the death of teaching. You can use a slide if you want to elaborate on a point that requires graphics that uh, would be difficult to put on a blackboard, but I would eschew PowerPoint slides like death. The other thing uh, I, I would encourage you to do is to engage the students if you can. And this is sometimes difficult. I always ask questions in class. Some students don't appreciate that, but there are times when the class is really dynamic. If you can get a class to really engage with you in discussion. It's a marvelous experience. And the discussion, the discussion can veer off of the topic into who knows what, you know, what happened last night on the sitcom taxi or whatever, but engage the students in, in discussion so that they're comfortable and they can relate to you. And I will tell you one more thing. You, you two are young and engaged and it's far easier for a young faculty member to engage with the students. The other thing, uh, and, I, and, and I know that, is that to the extent that you can employ demonstrations, not simulations necessarily, although they're okay, but hardware demonstrations, uh, that really engages students. In the early days of demonstrations, <laughs> there, there was always um, the problem of the demonstration working in the lab, and by the time you dragged it into the classroom, something went wrong. A demonstration can be a disaster. You know, Murphy's Law invariably interferes. And so, you know, in my experience, I have had classes where we have spent, you know, a good part of the class trying to get the thing to work. Um, <clears throat> partly it was a result of, of, of instrumentation that was far more, more primitive than what's available today. But to the extent that you can put together demonstrations of hardware that, that students can actually see, not just see the waveforms, but see the hardware, uh, see where you're putting the probes, uh, see the devices, see how a transformer or an inductor is wound, see, is this an air core, is this a ferrite core, is this a, a laminated core, uh, is this a polyethylene capacitor, is this a ceramic capacitor, show them it's worth its weight in gold to be able to really 
put together and exhibit a good demonstration. Thank you. Thank you so much for those suggestions, uh, Professor Dejik. I think that will be really handy to us and also to our listeners in order to make sure that we are giving our best to our students. One more question here, and this is this is a very interesting question in the sense it has gone through my mind several times, is like at this age and time, students are being bombarded with many new topics. There are a lot of new fields coming up to the students. They are exciting, they are engaging. How do we keep up to that expectation? How do we keep power electronics entertaining for the future generation? and show them the potential uh, and attract the highly talented students into our field. What's the best way to do that? Uh, I think the best way to do that is through good teaching. <clears throat> because if you do, you will developing fans for what you're doing. And you'll be able to convey to them through your enthusiasm, the enthusiasm that they will show them for this field. And you know, to sprinkle your lectures to the extent you can with with some of your practical experiences and that was one that that was one of the advantages of consulting because i could bring back to my classes some of the experiences that i had as a consultant you know a practical experience here's a problem here's what they were doing it's a real interesting problem how do you make cheerios with electricity and then to describe what went on and to describe the fact that, hey, th there are some cultural issues involved here in our field. How do you explain to a blue collar guy who's working in a factory that electricity is good? How do you explain the excitement? Well, you explain the excitement by showing how you were excited by a particular experience that you had. But one of the stories that that I used to tell, it, it had nothing to do really with the topic at hand. It was a consulting job where I was at a chemical plant in Louisiana. Uh, the problem with this chemical plant was they would shut the plant down on Friday and then on Monday when they would come in and they would throw the breakers to turn the plant back on, that the breakers, many of them would trip again and they had to reset them and they didn't understand what was happening until one day somebody walked out into the switchyard. And the switchyard, of course, has the transformers in it. And the transformers and switchgear are closed by uh, a chain link fence. And, and they noticed all around the transformer, there were these dead snakes. And so what they discovered was that at night on Friday, they would shut off the plant. These transformers were still warm. The nights down there are cold. So these snakes would crawl up on the transformers and wrap themselves around the bushings to stay warm. And on Monday morning, they'd come in, they'd throw the breaker on again and electrocute these snakes. And so, you know, yeah, it's not power electronics, but you know, it's an interesting story and it, and it engages the students. And that's the kind of thing that I think, if you bring yourself out into the world, if you get out of your office, which is becoming harder and harder to do, by the way. If you get out into the world, you get out into the industrial area where your work is being actually used, you'll be able to bring back into the classroom a wealth of interesting stuff. Can you give us a piece of advice, advice for junior faculty as well? Yeah, I will, because this is something I have thought about a lot. In a way, I feel sorry for junior faculty today. You are being inundated by so much information from so many directions that it's very hard 
to find the time to reflect, to sit down and actually think about the future. What is it that I'm doing? Where am I going? It's also almost impossible, I'm finding, to find the time to meet with your colleagues. When I joined the faculty, there was no internet. Uh, there was no personal computer. Uh, there was no cell phone. We had a telephone on our desk and, and we had offices that were adjacent to one another. And we had a laboratory where we all worked. On a daily basis, we were rubbing shoulders with each other. We were talking with each other. Uh, we were talking with our students. We were having lunch together. And at lunch, everybody at noon would be there. The table was about 12, 15, 18 people sitting around the table or sitting at the benches having lunch and just talking, talking about what was going on with some research perhaps, talking about what was going on with the lab, talking about which student uh, just blew up his experiment. Those sort of things were just, they were wonderful opportunities for interpersonal interaction. I find today that if I wanna meet with one of my faculty colleagues, I've gotta make an appointment like a week in advance, maybe. And, and then maybe I'll only get half an hour. Uh, demands on your time for things that, you know, perhaps in the previous uh, era might have received requests through the mail, e not email, but through the mail. Now you get email, you gotta immediately respond. You get a text, you gotta immediately respond. What's the advice? <clears throat> My advice, I don't know how easily it is for you to do this, but my advice is you have to make time for yourself. You have to find ways of shutting off all of this noise. You have to find time to engage interpersonally with your colleagues, your professional colleagues. And more than that, you have to have time to devote to your family. And I know as a junior faculty, as I was, that sometimes the family can be sacrificed to your profession. And this is very dangerous. For those of you with children, they grow up very fast. And before you know it, your opportunity to interact with them is gone. And you regret it. Now, I'm not saying that I didn't spend any time with my kids, but I could have spent more. And I wish I had. And I know other faculty who have experienced the same thing until it's all over. That's my advice to junior faculty. Take time for yourself and take time for your family. Well, that's a very heartfelt advice. Really, I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Professor Kasakian, so for your time and fascinating stories and this nice insights. Uh, it was a great honor to have you on the PELS podcast today. I'm sure whoever listens to this talk will enjoy as much as we do. Well, thank you very much. It was a great opportunity uh, to be able to chat with the two of you. And thank you, Arjit. Uh, thank you, Jane. Again, thank you so much, Professor Kasakian here. And, uh, and a special thanks to Megan, who is behind the scene helping us with all the logistics. For all our listeners, it is our aim of Digital Media and Education Committee to bring you more such podcasts, more such inspirational, informative, and useful um, uh, talks. Our aim is to have these podcasts available to you via our IEEE website, as well as Apple Podcast and Stitcher Podcast app, available on cell phones. 
Please stay tuned more, for more. Thank you, everyone.